ATV Talk, the podcast. Sit down with your host industry professional, Leonard Duncan, as the men and women from the ATV world bring their behind-the-scenes stories to life. Every Tuesday at 5 p.m. Pacific Standard Time. And remember, dream big. It could be your story one day. Jimmy White, how are you, sir? Doing good. Thanks for having me on. Well, no, hey, I really appreciate that. Last time we did this, we talked so much industry. We forgot all about the things that you've done with Kawasaki in the past, and you know, way back, and uh, and in the future as a as a manager. Yeah, there was. Uh, I, I wore a few different hats at Kawasaki. That's for sure, and and it's interesting to wear those different hats as a racer as a team manager, as a head uh, babysitter, if you want to, as a manager, um, <laughs> in the development part. Uh, you know, when I, when I race three-wheelers, um, I kind of knew what I wanted, but I was too much into the racing part to really help with development, if you will. Yes, I was their guinea pig, and, and they tried out a lot of different stuff because, you know, three-wheelers were new at that point. Um, but I had no idea what the hell I was doing. Whereas coming into the Kawasaki team in 2006, 2007, um, had a lot better idea. You know, I'd been developing a lot of tires since then. And so had a lot better idea of the vehicles of the, the quads and everything else and what I could help with. When you, when you think back, being the racer, being the team manager, how big of a transition is that for you? Um, it, they're both fun in their own aspects. Uh, the, the racing obviously is more, you, you get more glory out of it. Um, and you're a hell of a lot more intense because you got a lot more online. Whereas a, a team manager um, with what we were doing, yes, we had a, brand new vehicle that had never been raced raced before and it was like starting from scratch so the one thing i've learned over the years is to find good people and surround them with you and make sure that you listen and pick their brain and and at the end of the day it's still you know as the team manager you still have to make that decision on what you're going to run you know on the suspension on the motor and yeah, you can listen to the racers all day long, but they all have opinions. And we had the first year we had two different racers, completely two different racers. And one was just really good and finesse being uh, Jason Luberg, loved working with him. Um, but he could ride anything. Whereas Creamer was a bowl in a china closet and he could break anything. So, you know, you've got two different personalities, two different riding styles. And so you, we had to surround ourselves. I mean, Doug Roll was a big help with us on it. Um, Elka suspension was a big help to start off with. And we just, <coughs> sorry, um, we just, uh, you got to surround yourself with good people and learn from them because they're the experts. I'm just a team monkey wrench to try to throw everything together. Um, didn't, wasn't there a kind of a rush thing dropping this whole thing together in the beginning where, you guys only had X amount of time to, to, to get machines on the track. For sure. Yeah. We got the, um, 
We got the first four wheelers that were pre-production. Reed Nordine, who is my last mechanic at Kawasaki when I raced, he was a big part of this. He was the head of Team Green at that point. And the Japanese asked him to really jump into this, and he did. And he, without him, we wouldn't have done near as much at the beginning um, because he knew the ins and outs of Kawasaki, which I uh, I know the guys down there and the R&D and worked with them before and testing and everything. But he was a real he was the one that was behind it that really helped push this through. Um, we got, I think, our first pre-pro in either November or early December. And we had to start having parts built right away off of those with our fingers crossed that the, the parts were going to fit on a production model because we weren't going to get a production model. I think the first race that we did, first national we did was in February or March. And I don't think we got a uh, quad, a production quad until like or so before that. So we did a lot of pre-pro stuff and luckily they did a great job. Um, Kawasaki, this, this, uh, this four wheeler was hands down a better thought out, better all around quad than what their Takati four was. They definitely stepped on their, in my opinion, they stepped on their dick on the Takati four. It was just, it was not meant for somebody, a person racer my size. Whereas this uh, new four wheeler that they came out with in 2007 was, it was a great vehicle all around. Yeah. My son raised him and he liked them. He thought they handled really good. And most everybody that, that I've talked to that have ridden the machines love the way they handle. Right. Just never seemed to get the power out of them that they wanted. It took us, um, it took us a lot of work to get the power out of it. And it started with uh, Mitch at Pro Circuit. He jumped in with both feet. Um, and the biggest problem was even if we get enough power out of it, then we started struggling with overheating. And so that first year we signed uh, Mark Baldwin. He had, well, Timmy Farr was supposed to race one, but he ended up getting hurt. Um, and this was going to be our support team at the nationals, but it, we had two pro-am riders, um, um, shit, Mark Kendall and, uh, I can't think of the other kid's name, but they won a shitload of races, but the same thing, they didn't need as much horsepower in the pro-am as we did the pro class. Right. Um, I, I can remember our first race was at Glen Helen, uh, AMA national. And at that point, we weren't sure if we were going to do the WPSA, I think it was called, or the AMA series. And we, Mitch kept on telling us, you guys just got to go to the Glen Helen and you guys got to get your feet wet, see where you're at. And I've got pictures of us coming off the line, you know, Talladega shit. By the time we got to Talladega, everybody else was almost through the first corner. We were that low on horsepower at that point. Wow. Yeah, and you know, Glen Helen is the biggest horsepower robber there is. You need a ton there with the hills and everything else and the long straightaways. <laughs> but it, you know, it was a good it was a good start. I'm glad we did that. I'm glad Mitch Peyton talked us into doing it. Um, it was a ton of work because we were not ready. Uh, but we came back and started in, you know, jumped in with both feet, and we had a 
a mechanic that um, I had hired, uh, Ben Shiremeyer, and he, which ended on ended up going on after he was done with the ATV thing into working for Gibbs Racing and other people, and did is a real good mechanic, but his hands were full because he's doing motors. He's the only full-time guy I had at that point. And he's working with Mitch's guys, um, trying to do everything. And it was a job that he wasn't, nobody, one person was going to be able to get done in the first year. So first year we struggled a little bit and we kind of figured we would, but um, we got the thing working exceptionally well, just needed more horsepower is what it came down to. And we, Work kept on working at it, and um, the second year uh, we got it better. But then the third year is when we hired Ryan Cox from the Suzuki team, and that was a game changer. I mean, he understood it all. He understood how to get the horsepower. He understood how to get the thing to run cooler, and that's when we started really winning. I mean, the second year we won a moto here or there with Creamer. Um, but the last year shift between Creamer and Chad Meenan, they were, they were winning every other moto damn there. That's awesome. That's awesome. What were they, uh, when you think back, when you rode the, the, the Takati in, in the two stroke and then the four stroke motors, what's the big contrast between the two in your opinion? Uh, money. My God, it takes so much more money to make those four strokes run. I mean, they just run better anyway, obviously. Um, it's a whole different ball game. Uh, it just, it's a game changer. And it's, uh, it, I was lost. I used to be able to do my own work on my two strokes, my three-wheeler and my four-wheeler. Uh, Basani helped, obviously did most motor work back then and, um, but I was able to build the things. These four strokes, it's just, uh, well, you do it every day in and out, but um, it, it's just different. It's, it's intimidating. Um, and you just, it seems like it's harder to get more horsepower out of it, but that's not true because it's easier to get more horsepower. It's just costs more money to get more horsepower out of it. That's that's totally true. The the dollar figure it it turns into a cubic dollar in a heartbeat, and everybody assumes that it's you know drop a set of cams in there and you just set the world on fire. Right, right. I remember my first my first invoice from Mitch at Pro Circuit for uh, uh, he sponsored us and helped us a ton, but there was hard parts that we would just have to buy and. I remember my, what my budget was and the first time I ordered valves and valve springs and all that shit. And it was like a $10,000 bill. I'm like, are you shitting me? And where am I going to find money to keep on, you know, rebuilding these heads and, and everything else. And it, it costs us a hell of a lot more money in that department than it did anything else by far. And I just, I just don't think that the general consumer or the general racer even has any idea what it really costs to run the program and to build the parts. It's, it's crazy. It's crazy. And you know, most of our, <coughs> most of our, I would say 
90% of everything we did either came from Kawasaki, came from aftermarket guys like Roll or Elka, um, ITP tires, DWT wheels, uh, axles. And we didn't pay a dime for any of that product. But when you get to that motor department, the, nobody's going to give that shit away for free. No, it's just there, there's, no, there's no recourse in it. You, there's no way to recoup it. Right, right. You know? And and unless you unless Kawasaki's unless your team's selling X number of engines for us, it's not feasible either. Right, for sure. Did you uh, did you like being the the uh, or did you, what I what I'm trying to say is did you gain more respect for the team managers and the guys that you worked under when you were racing after you became the manager? Well, I was a. I was a major pain in the ass as a racer. <laughs> um, I went through a different mechanic every year. Uh, ended up being pretty good friends with a few of them, Billy Keefe um, and Reed Nordine. Um, became good friends with some of them. and But other ones, uh, we just didn't see eye to eye because I expected I was putting my life out there on the line and I was working my ass off. And I expected the same out of everybody else. Um, as far as team managers, I, I basically had two. And it was James DeGain, um, which is a class act and was with Kawasaki forever. And then his boss, Bruce, Bruce Sternstrom. Before Bruce, the very first guy that I signed with was Dave Jordan, who's no longer with us. But he was he was a great guy. He, he really didn't um, know much about racing. He knew about the politics part. Matter of fact, he'd go to the races and he wouldn't even watch the race. He'd sit back in the box van or in the pits and wait till we're done racing. And he was always the first one if we wanted to celebrate with us and enjoy the times. And he was a good leader, if you will. Um, but he he was only there for a year. The first year I was there, then Bruce Sternstrom take over, took over. And Bruce was all in. Uh, Bruce is still the head white guy if you will for kawasaki of all racing and he's he still loves racing and every time i'm around him that's all he ever wants to talk about is three-wheel racing the fun times we had and, i mean he went to every race and so i was surrounded by some great guys in kawasaki for sure do you think that um kawasaki's still putting forth the same effort that they used to in racing well, no, of course not. Um, I don't think anybody is, are they? Uh, they, uh, well, they do with, with motocross, supercross, of course. Um, they're starting to pick back up with off-road, but, you know, the racing, they don't do road racing in the U.S. anymore. Kawasaki doesn't. They don't do um, any ATV racing. What shit, they don't even have an ATV to race anymore. They're watercraft, to the best of my knowledge. I mean, I don't really pay attention to a lot of that type of racing, but they don't have a factory team watercraft racing either. So it's just, it's a different world than what it was back when we were racing. And even when things were really good, this last time when, but let's think about it. I mean, we had what, uh, Yamaha, Suzuki, Honda support riders, Kawasaki had a factory team. Can-Am had a race team. Polaris had a race team. Those were exciting ass times for ATV racing. 
yeah, it, it, it was. It kind of hung all of us independents out to dry, but yep. but for the factories, it was great stuff. Um, and then it died. Right. Well, it's pretty typical of the manufacturers too. I mean, they just start pulling. It was no different than when I was racing three wheelers. You know, Honda pulled the plug, and and next thing I know, Bruce Sternstrom's calling me in in November of '86 and says, "Hey, by the way." Honda's done racing, so we're done racing. I'm like, what kind of bullshit excuse is that? They're done racing, so we're done racing? He goes, well, we still want you to race, but we want you to race four-wheelers. We're done with the three-wheelers. And we all know what happened back then anyway. I mean, it was uh, the economy took a little bit of a shit or a big shit, and then the whole Barbara Wallow bullshit um, did not help with 60 Minutes or whatever show that she went in there and act like she knew what the hell she was talking about. Yeah. She didn't talk to anybody that knew anything and just right. kneecapped us. Yeah. 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 It, it, it happens more often than we'd like to talk about, but I get it. You know, I get it. Right. <laughs> what uh, we, we were having a conversation a while back about the four strokes and the dimension, the things that they offer the industry with longevity of life and the riders. Do you see that from where you, I know you're watching some of it. You're not paying as much attention as you used to, but are you seeing the riders careers last longer because of the four stroke? Um, I'm probably not a good one to ask on that. Uh, <laughs> honestly, um, I, I don't know. I don't know if that is prolonging these guys' careers or not. I, these guys are the racer now. Like when I was racing, yes, we were serious. Um, but we didn't know the shit that these kids know about training now and everything. But you look at the weaning or the creamer when creamer was racing. And these guys are true athletes. Uh, they're world-class athletes or Joel Hetry. They can do They can do anything. And I think that's what's prolonging them is they're more true athletes. Um, the four-stroke part, I'm sure it helps. Uh, they're definitely easier to ride, easier to go fast on. Um, but, yeah, I, don't, I, I wouldn't know how to answer that one if that's what's prolonging. But I think it's just there are more athletes out there now. Do you foresee in the future – any of the any of the manufacturers not let's take Yamaha off the table because they're still helping a little bit. But do you do you see them coming back at all? No, no, unfortunately not. This this whole side by side world has just changed everything. They it, it's just easy for them to build these, and um, I'm guilty of it. Uh, I still have a utility quad that I test tires with, but. Uh, I've got three side by sides, and that's what we do as a family. Is as me and my buddies, you know, it, like it rained hard today. We'll probably go ride them the next couple of days up and tear up the trails just because uh, between dirt bikes and side by sides. I mean, that's all I really do anymore. Um, there's just not enough sales to support, I don't think, anymore the whole thing, the whole quad racing uh for new bike sales i should say yeah yamaha is pretty much stealing the market and 
And that's the only reason they're probably making them is because they're the only ones selling them. Right. Right. And I'm sure those numbers aren't great. You know, Donnie Luce is one of my best friends and we talk business here and there, but try to stay away from it because I don't want him to have, you know, I don't want him to have to lie to me about different numbers and stuff. So um, I know even their, their involvement been reduced every year for the last five, six years. Yeah. I'm Chad's creating ways to make money. Right. Because if he doesn't get something, he's done too. Well, you know, Chad is the Gary Denton, if you will, of my time. Gary was very creative on finding ways to make money or really chintz out and have other people pay for getting to the races for him and his product or his vehicles and everything. But you've got to be this day and age because there's just not enough. Uh, there's just not enough support from, you know, you guys, Duncan Racing or, or me as a tire guy. I mean, I, I can't afford, you know, to spend all kinds of money. There's just not enough sport tires sold. I mean, I've, I've seen it through the years. I've been started when I was with Dyco slash Armstrong with the Turf Tamer, which was the tire back in the day. Um, and then just with all the different tires I've represented and built and represented, the numbers just aren't there anymore. Yeah. It's just not a sport quads being sold. Uh, yeah. And there's in the industry of, with people, the consumers out there buying, because what kills me is, is, a, is a, somebody will become a racer and they go, well, I'm a racer now. I deserve everything for free. Right. right. <laughs> no, that's not how this works. You no. know? No, no, we just got into uh, dirt bike tires uh, with AMS last year, and it's a price point tire. It's a great price point tire, and we get asked that all the time. Well, do you want to sponsor this series? Do you want to sponsor me? That's not what we're doing. We're here to make money. I'm sorry, you know, and and that's the beauty of having that price point tire. People that are gonna that are buying the product, it's maybe a third as much as the, like a Dunlop or a Pirelli or something. So there's market out there. It's just, you gotta know when to say when on helping, helping people out. I mean, shit, it's, it's a hobby for most, most everybody that's racing period. Um, there's a handful in it. I don't care what you're racing, uh, four wheelers, um, motorcycles, flat track, there's only a handful of guys and it's always been this way in any sport. There's only a handful of guys making a living at it. You know, everybody else is scratching to stay alive. Yeah, that's true. And, and, and there's no difference in the, the dirt track guys in America to the ATV racers. Their, their purses haven't went up very much over the years. And I think Supercross has a huge advantage over us because they're televised. Right. Right. You know, the only way you're going to make any money is to be televised. Right. Yeah. But I mean, even those guys making a good living, you're still talking maybe the top 10 in there. You might go further than five, like most sports or most racing, but um, it's still the top 20 can make a living. But after that, are they really making a living? You know, after the, the outside of the top 20, eh, not much. They're, they're cutting it. They're not buying houses and things, you know, that kind of a living they're getting by. I was listening to a couple motorcycle guys, uh, not in the, uh, 
maybe in the top 20, but not in the top 10. And they said they made most of their money racing fares. Yeah. Because they could travel and plot their course and race these fair races and make enough money to pay all the travel expenses, to pay all their other expenses <clears throat> so they could stay on the series racing Supercross. Yep. Well, that, that was even true back when I was racing. I was lucky enough that Kawasaki didn't care how much I raced, whereas Honda was a little more strenuous on their riders on you know, going to local races or whatever. But, you know, there was, there was a Speedway series back when I raced. It paid a, on a Saturday night. It was $1,000 to win cash. Oh, yeah. You got to love that. I mean, we did that. Uh, shit, I don't know how many times. They had 10 or 11 of them one year. And it was like, this This is the best side money that you can a guy can make. And yeah, that's free money at that point because I wasn't paying for a damn thing. You know, for Kawasaki was still paying for everything. Yeah, you can go there on their nickel, win a thousand bucks, put it in your pocket and, and, yeah. and go home. Yep. Hey, you were out in your side-by-side -side not too long ago and you ran into a, a, a guy in distress. You want to you want to tell me the story on that because I've heard a rumor and I've seen some yeah. pictures, but you know, oh, yeah, you've seen pictures. I sent them to you. That was a great day. Uh, <laughs> we go out for Thanksgiving every year. Um, been going out there since before I moved to California, which was in '83. And my kids—that's the only place they've ever spent Thanksgiving—is at Glamis. Anyway, uh, I'm leading a group of, I don't know, six, seven guys. We're hauling ass through the dunes. And I always, you see people out there stuck or broke or whatever. And, you know, being, being an Iowan, you know, you're always wanting to help somebody. And so I pull over to this guy and I'm looking at him like, are you kidding me? And <laughs> I had a helmet on and it was your brother, Lauren. <laughs> and I, I said something to him and he kind of looked at me and he was stuck to the frame and I said you're needing some help and he goes oh yeah and he's looking for his group of friends that was out there riding with him that must have didn't even notice he got stuck but yeah your brother was out there stuck in the frame so I hooked up my Warren winch with my Kawasaki and I said how do you like this a Kawasaki pulling out your Honda Talon here he goes, as long as it's not a player, so I'm good. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I, seen, I had not seen Lauren since the 2000, um, what the hell they call that? The Legends deal at Ashtabula. So it was great seeing him out there. Well, the funny thing is, not to get off topic, but he has just started going back with his son. Um, because son bought a rail and Lauren bought the talon and we bought the talon to start trying to develop something. Right. You know what it's like trying to develop parts. Yeah. You know, we're looking at that, at that platform and that industry and you know, where do you start? How deep do you want to get into it? How much money do you want to spend? And I haven't got to drive the car yet because every time I drive one, I put it on its lid um, you laugh, but it's true. Um, so he hasn't let me drive it yet. Um, and, and he tells me, he says, you know, there's not really anything I want to do to it. 
He says, I want to drive it, you know, put the seatbelts on and go drive it. Yeah. Yeah. They come pretty damn amazing. You know, Basani uh, attempted to build pipes for exhaust systems for them uh, three years ago. And being Daryl, being one of my best friends forever, um, and we, we both sell two parts unlimited. So that's his main customer for Harley pipes. Well, he wanted to get back into something off road each. And I told him, I said, you know what, Daryl, it's got to look badass. It can't just, it's got to sound good. And it's got to look badass because it does not need any more damn horsepower. That's the whole thing. And so you can, you can make this thing. If you just try to make it look like a stock exhaust, you're not going to sell shit. And unfortunately that's what he started off with. And I think he's, uh, he can't keep up. I mean, that's his biggest thing. He can't keep up with Harley pipes, but he really wanted to get into it, but it's tough to make. There's a lot of aftermarket stuff that's needed for those, but motor wise, that ain't one of them. I mean, it's not needed there. No. And, and to do motor work and, and you look at most of the UTVs in the industry, I know we're totally not talking about what we, what we got on here to talk about, but <laughs> when you look at the UTV market, you're looking at something that has a warranty that the factories are doing the warranty work and the dealerships are getting all that money. And the aftermarket guys, we have to wait three to five years to get any of that money. And then who's going to spend the kind of money it takes on an, on an engine rebuild or a chassis rebuild when they can go get a payment for $200 a month and own a car, a, a new one. Right. Right. It <laughs> makes it tough for the aftermarket. That's for sure. That's for sure. For motor wise, especially. Yeah. And, and the motor facility at, at, at DRI is, you know, we've been around business almost 50 years and we've never had more engines in our facility than we do now. <laughs> it, You're talking ATV? Uh, ATV. ATV. Really good for you guys. We have a few motorcycle engines occasionally because we have customers with crossover. We right. get a, we get a few UTV motors. Um, but yeah, it, it it is unbelievable the amount of engines that are being worked on two stroke and four stroke. Good. Good. It's crazy. You know, I mean, yeah, I it, it is crazy out there right now. That's for sure. Um, yeah. We still have some delivering problems. I'm sure you guys have some supply issues as well. Oh my good God. Yeah. You, who would have ever thought that this uh, pandemic was going to increase our fun meter and business as much as it has. I mean, my, my sales are up, was up in 2020. It was up over 180% compared to 2019. That's Yeah. I think what it did is it rejuvenated people's love of the outdoors. Um, Absolutely. You know, they, they, their children and themselves finally realized, Hey, yeah, I love playing on my device, but I can do that at night when I'm in the trailer or I can do that at night when I'm at home, but during the day, Hey, let's go play in the, in the dirt in, and have some outside fun. Yeah. Yeah. You know, do you think that, uh, you don't think that that's going to generate any new ATV business? No, unfortunately not. Unfortunately not. You know, <clears throat> I've been asked this for many years off and on. And I just, I think that ship has sailed. Unfortunately. Uh, it's just, 
it's going to be a niche. I think the ATV business it was amazing many different times in different eras. Um, I think the racing is second to none as far as family oriented. When I was running the Cowie race team, I mean, when I raced, yes, I was focused on racing, but I was always there for the amateur kids and I was always there watching and, and supporting and just seeing what's going on in the industry. And, and met a ton of good friends, you know, um, kids and their families and meadows. Well, when we did the, uh, started the ATV team in 2007, um, same thing. I mean, our, our pits were open. We were helping anybody that had a Kawasaki. Um, we would help anybody, period. Um, and it was just great family oriented racing. And I'm sure if I went today, I would see, and I haven't been since the year Creamer won on the Suzuki was the last national that I'd been to. Um, and I bet you if I went today, uh, I would still know a ton of them people and it'd be just like, we never missed a beat um, from the days, not from me racing, because that was the thing. When I became team manager in 2007, 2006, <clears throat> My racers didn't even know I raced. They, they didn't even know that three-wheeler ever raced back. You know, Jason Luber did. I'll give him. He was a little bit older, but like Creamer, Creamer had no idea. He had no respect for what I had done, and, and I wasn't looking for that kind of respect. I was trying to earn the respect as a team manager at that point. And as far as at the races and the amateur kids, because we helped, I mean, at one year – I think we had, uh, just like back in the Team Green days when I raced, I was, well, my, myself and Chris White were the only two factory racers for the first two years. And then they, uh, Chris moved on to Yamaha. I was the only factory racer, but there was probably 10 to 12 support riders uh, between Steve Mendenhall, Tim Helter, Donnie Lou, Sean Finley. Um, and then you get back east, and there was a ton of them back there. Obviously, Jackie Meadows, um, amateur wise, and at one point, Charlie Shepard. And um, when we did this last gig, uh, we jumped into it just like how Kawasaki always did, and amateur was a big part of it. Um, we, we supported a lot of pros too, uh, with bikes and parts. And some of them, like Keith Little, the last year we helped him out because he was, Keith was a great test rider. And so we would support him out with a little bit of cash on top of that. Um, but we had a ton of amateur riders and one of them being Joel Hetrick um, and, and his cousin, forget the kid's name. Uh, he won a B class on a Cowie and it was just, it was a good times. And they... Kawasaki, in my opinion, has always done that part of it right as far as amateur and working the way up. We just, unfortunately, with ATV racing, it just never, it's never had the longevity that motorcycle racing has, dirt bike racing has. I, I agree. You know, I've got, I got to ride for Kawasaki one year. Yep. I remember that. I remember that. They, they're great at supporting people and helping everybody out with, you know, ideas. I mean, weren't you on the V force? Yeah, I was on the V force. Yeah. Yeah. And, uh, you know, if I had had it done over again, I would have taken the second year they offered 
Um, just because I still love that bike. Uh, me too. I just sold mine and I'm kind of bummed I did. I kept it for a long time just to lead the kids around at Glamis. But shit, them kids don't need me to lead them around anymore. I'm in their way. So they're all on 450 Yamahas, 450 Cowies, and 700 Raptors and stuff. And, and I was slowing them down. So I'm like, yeah, I better sell it. But shit, I should have kept it and followed them and had a good time for once. But, I mean... I would have to say, if you know, you've, you've trained a lot in your life and you've done a lot of different things. And, and I still get the opportunity to work with younger riders or older guys or just riders in general. And two things that I like to do is have them ride a CVT clutch and have them ride a three-wheeler. Right. Because the three-wheeler teaches them how to turn. Yeah. And the CTV clutch teaches them how to stay in the gas. Yeah, for sure. When I went from the 700 to the 450, I think the only reason I maintained uh, the level and won the championship in the 30A class that year was because of that Kawasaki. Right. Corner speed was incredible because I never shut off. Yep. yep. <laughs> you know, I mean, you just, you, you know, because you've ridden the machine. Yeah, well, yeah. And if you got out of the ass in the bumps... Oh boy, did it get exciting! Oh, I, I I couldn't imagine racing one, but yes, I enjoy riding them at Glamis. <laughs> oh, I never got to ride mine in the sand dunes. I only rode it in the rough, and um, you know, Doug Roll did a lot of work trying to make the rear shock work because the one thing that uh, that was backwards about the seven hundred is when you got out of the gas, it squat, right? Instead of when you get in the gas, it, it, it's squatting. It extended this. It, it 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 pushed the shock longer when you got on the gas. So it was opposite. And Doug really had to work hard to get that shock to work for us. Well, I'm sure. I'm sure. And yeah. And didn't uh, um, Greg Stewart and Nick Grunland? Then they build. Didn't uh, Stewart's build one for desert racing too? Oh, they spent a ton of dough trying to yeah. make a direct drive and chain. Yeah, and, yeah, yeah. yeah. I kind of remember that. Stewart's are still a good customer of mine. I supply them casings for ATV and and UTV uh, paddle tires. But yeah, I thought they they did some serious work on on those things. Same type of deal. Kawasaki was they're always interested in helping people try to you know reach their dreams. Basically, they're good people. I think the coolest thing ever about that was, is we were in Texas for a work race. And I think it, it was the first round and uh, the way that the races broke down. And, and I think that race was, um, <coughs> it wasn't the first ATV race of the weekend, but we were the, we were the premier class in the front row. And when I come over the jump, in the very back corner of the motocross track and the team green uh, semis there and all the team green guys are standing on the fence and I'm the first machine over the jump. I, I will remember that to the day I die because it was <laughs> the coolest thing. Those guys couldn't believe it. And they were jumping up and down and screaming and hollering every lap I came by. <laughs> uh, I ended up, I ended up getting beat on the last 
uh, the last transition through the water crossing was a momentum thing. Mm. And I had been taking it every time on the right-hand side. And I said, you know what? He's been taking it on the left. I took the left and it had a, a jarring at the bottom and uh, it lost my momentum and he drove by and right. I didn't have the, I just didn't have the drive to, uh, to pass him. And, uh, it was a little bummer. It was a bummer, but I still, that, that coming over that jump first and seeing those guys just, you know, That's couldn't awesome. believe that, that big monster was leading. <laughs> I think we raced, uh, I think we raced 14 races that year. And I bet you I whole shotted nine of them. Really? That's awesome. Well, and that was the work series. Yep. That was the work yeah. series. So the work series actually went back to Texas at one point, huh? Yeah. And we went to Ignacio, Colorado. Wow. Uh, I did not know that. Huh. Monticello, Utah. Yeah. I knew they've been, they went up in Utah forever. I didn't know they made it into Colorado or into Texas. Yeah. We went from Idaho. Hmm. I mean, that, that, uh, the Idaho race, I won the very first pro-am race that works ever had hmm. you know, on that 700. On the 700. Very good. I beat uh, our, my teammate was Tim Gillespie and he Tim. I had never beat Tim and I beat him that day. Hmm. First time, <laughs> first <laughs> and last time, but uh, <laughs> you know, it, it, it's been a lot of fun. And, and uh, I wish that we could see a growth in it. I see an enthusiasm because we just did a uh, uh, training camp up here in Campo and in California. Mm -hmm. um, Most of the kids were on Raptor two fifties. Right. Right. And that was a great little group. Um, Some of them are transitioning and into four fifties, but there were still some seven, eight, nine, 10 year olds that just love it. Right. Problem is, is there's just no machines for them. Right. Right. That is the big problem right now. Do you think it's a political problem or do you think it's an, an industry not wanting to make it? Um, I, I just don't think there's enough sales to justify really expanding into some of those into models that is needed. I mean, my kids went from a little Suzuki 50 quad quad to a uh, um, shit, the uh, LT 80 quad, which was a great intermediate and then to a blaster and then to two fifties, two strokes quads. And that was, there was some pretty good sized jumps in there that if there would have been something a little bit better, I would have rather put them on before I put them on a two fifty or between the 80 and the 202 stroke. Um, I think there's enough to pick from for these families right now. Uh, It's just, it's getting harder and harder to find some of the things like I've been looking for my grandkids are now nine and seven and five. And uh, that's my next, uh, they're all, they're two of them are on nineties. Um, believe this or not, I have a Honda 90. Uh, <laughs> yeah, yeah, believe me. Not, not something I'm real proud of. Did you paint uh, it green? Probably, probably one of the few Hondas I've ever owned in my life. Did you paint it green? No, nah, I'm not that picky. Most of that shit. Wes McCoy hasn't worked at Honda forever, so I don't. I don't have the hatred that I used to, because he was the one I hated the most there. 
Well, that's, it's just funny that you say that, you know, I mean, cause I've been a Honda rider my whole life, right. but I've owned, I've owned, you know, Kawasaki's and Yamaha's and Suzuki's and, and the only thing I can't, the only thing I probably will never buy is a KTM. Can't really? Do can't do it. Yeah, I'm on my third. You know, KTM, grow, for me growing up, KTM was a piece of shit dirt bike. And I always had buddies that would have them. But for what I do now, they're the only ones that make anything that's worth a shit for what Which I want. I have a KTM 500 EXC, and now I've got a 350 EXC. And they're just, they're, they make what works for somebody that's just trail riding like what I want to do. Um, the, the two stroke 300 that they make. Yeah. Ridden one of those. Yep. Oh yeah. Yeah. I love it. You like that a lot, huh? Yeah. 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 Um, and, but for what I do on the West coast, that doesn't make as much sense. If I live back in Iowa where I grew up, then a lot of my buddies have those because it's tight woods and everything. But what I do out here, you know, we'll hit a, we'll hit a two track or a Jeep trail and we might do a hundred miles. Um, I would rather have the four stroke and a little more reliability and we might hit the road that I need to be, you know, that, that we'll do 60, 70 miles an hour. Um, yeah, I, I would never guess in a hundred years I'd own a KTM or a Polaris and I own one of them piece of shits too. <laughs> Are you going to get rid of it to 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 put a Kawasaki in the lineup? Or are you going to keep? I've got two Kawasaki's KRX one thousands, but um, one's mine, one's my kids. Uh, Rhonda just loves. We don't ride together. Um, she loves to drive herself. I've taken her to Moab. I've taken her up some of the nastiest shit you've ever seen, and she loves the challenge. But she likes her Polaris, and so I buy her a new Polaris about every other year. And, um, like I always tell her, and it pisses her off. Is we do all Polaris as a consumer. We do Polaris as R and D work because they sure as hell don't do it. Right. They're recall every other month. It seems like. Well, they sure didn't like me when I got to go back there. No. <laughs> no. I think that was one of the deciding factors uh, for Eichner making his decision. You know, to not have uh, not be with us anymore. Because right. When we did the intro there, you know, and and they got the cameras there, and the the engineers are all standing there, and and I just go, hey, who's got the pad and paper? And they go for what? And I go, well, you got to make a list of all the things you got to fix. Yeah. Oh yeah. Oh yeah. <laughs> they didn't like. They didn't like that at all. No. No. Yeah. But they still number one selling UTV, and I, that's what I mainly sell. I mean, I still sell, believe this or not, I still sell more ATV tires than I do UTV tires. And we are one of the kings of, of tires for UTVs and ATVs. Um, but as far as volume, like 25, 8, 12, 25, 10, 12, I still sell more of those two than I probably will together uh so the utility quads are still out there um as far as ut tires yeah this polaris is still the king for that and we sell these polaris dealers just uh they sell the shit out of our product so 
I've got to support them and I badmouth them here and there. But at the end of the day, they make probably one of the better handling vehicles out there, in my opinion. Um, it just doesn't, the reliability is not that great. What's the uh, drivability of your Cowies? Because I've not, I've not even got to sit in one yet. If you sat in one, you wouldn't probably buy anything else. Really? Yeah. It's lack of, lack of horsepower is its biggest issue. Um, other than that, I'm telling you right now, it is the best handling. It fits me the best. Um, I, I, one of the good dealers over here that buys my a shitload of my product, he has four dealerships over here. He has everything, every brand known to man other than Harley Davidson, which he has Harley, but it's in Oregon. Um, anyway, I've become pretty good friends with him. When that Honda first came out, he loved, he, he, the thing looks really good. Looks awesome. Um, but he, he, I was talking to him, we were at a event and he goes, man, the thing just needs a lot of suspension work. You know, if you're going to go push that thing, it needs a lot of work. <laughs> and he races, uh, what we call a series over here, AZOP. Yep. And he raced it there and he said it just about jarred his teeth loose and he'd already done head shock therapy due to suspension. So when the Cowie first came out, I'd already knew that I was going to get one and he got one, a demo first and he went and raced it and he called me and he goes, Jimmy, there's, I, I've never, I did nothing to this other than the rules, the nets and shit like that. He goes, I've never driven nothing like this thing. And that's his everyday he could have Can-Ams, he could have Polaris's, he, but that's his everyday go-to. That's pretty awesome. I can't wait to get a chance to drive one. I still want to drive the Talon as well, but, you know, the Polaris that I've driven, the Polaris's that I've driven, and the Yamaha that I've driven, I've turned them all on their lid, so. Yeah, you know, that's because you're pushing it. I've had my Yamaha, I had a Yamaha for two or three years. I got through Donnie and... Um, if you don't push it on the lid eventually, then you're not pushing it hard enough. Well, I I built Randy at GPR his uh, his car for him. Oh, shocks on it and did all the generator work for it and yeah. and uh, set it up. Well, I didn't roll it because I was pushing. I rolled it because I messed up the shift. I upshifted instead of downshifted and soft on an off on an, on a side hill, and it just rolled over. Oh, yeah. If I'd have owned it, Lauren and I probably would have brought him home on records because I would have I would have freaking stuck it in the side door more than once. But <laughs> oh, I'm telling you right now, the Yamaha is, is at Glamis, it is by far the most fun. It's like racing. You can get the thing sideways in the dunes. Um, the paddle shifter is just amazing on that thing. Randy's got the first version, so it's just all shifter. And yeah. I loved it. It's just a yeah. driver's car. I mean, it, it's just a driver's car. You just, you're yeah. driving it, you know, you're, you're never bored. Yep. I agree. I agree. The, the biggest thing for me was just the, it for the trail riding that we do, it doesn't handle near as good as the uh, cowing, but it's still, it's a ton of fun. How does that cow- if you remember Steve Mendenhall? Yeah, I just, I've been trying to get him on the show. Okay. Yep. He came out last year about this time and he drove, he owns a Yamaha 
and he drove my cat. First, he drove my Yamaha, and then he jumped in my Cowie, and he's bought a Cowie since then because it's just it's for guys our size. The one the Yamaha is a ton of fun, but it's tight. It's small. Whereas that Cowie is just for tall, big guys. It's just it feels great to be in it. No, I'm gonna have to get. I'm gonna have to find somebody who's got one and and give it a try because uh, I mean I'm not. I'm still. I'm still more passionate about riding than I am driving. Right. I mean, I had a good time driving. Don't get me mind. I felt really bad. My daughter's first ride in a UTV. And I put it on its lid. Yeah, well, first time ever in the dunes. And I, oh, put, really? yeah, uh, she got to ride with Brian Fuller the, the next time we went out on a ride, but uh, she was okay. She didn't scream. She didn't get upset. She, good. Good. she finished the ride with me and uh, wanted to go back again. So I was happy about that. There you go. There you go. So back, back to uh, Kawasaki, the, the team. Um, I know that you had a good time doing it. Did you really have any regrets afterwards? Uh, the only regret I had is we didn't win a championship. We could have, should have the last year. Um, the Suzuki team was a little more, Wimmer was, was more consistent that year. And the Suzuki was more consistent. We still had a few issues here and there, even though we were winning our share races. Um, the only regret is that they didn't keep on doing it. I, I was having a time of my life and my son was going to the races working with me. He was in high school. So he'd go to the races and, you know, working on the, around the semi cleaning things up. And so I got to spend a lot of time with him. Um, yeah. So it, that's the only regret is that they didn't keep on doing it, but it is what it is at the end of the day. Did they ever give you a, a justifiable reason or just was the cost was just too high? Um, they gave me a justifiable reason and um, they just, uh, the Japanese decided it was time to pull the plug. They pulled plug on everything that year, racing, uh, road racing, um, off-road racing. Uh, they kept on off-road racing, I take that back. Um, but road racing got cut. We got cut. Um, it was just times were tough right then and they had to do something. What was the last year that you got to do it? 2010, I think was it. Yeah. You could have got that. If you could have got that one or two more years out of it, you probably would have got that title. Yeah. Uh, we, we definitely were right there in the hunt between Wien and Creamer. We were winning our share, you know, and we, and, Cowie through uh, the support riders. Um, we had Joe Havistow that was, he won the New England series, which is a, a huge series back then. Um, they would have seven, 800 entries on a weekend. He won the pro and pro-am class on that. Um, uh, we won a ton of races in the last year, but yeah, it, it is what it is. And uh, that's the only regret. It would have changed a few other things, yes, but that was just um, things that, you know, riders getting in my head, and that's 
that's something I'd never had to deal with before. Uh, I'm trying to satisfy them, whereas I should have just been listening to my gut and the people around me and just keep on doing what we were doing, you know, how we started the series. But it is. Did you still develop tires while you were working for the Cowie guys? 100%. How did that work out with the time frames? Um, it was a lot of hours and gone a lot. And we were over, I was over in California. Shit, I don't know how many weeks out of the month, um, every, every spring, you know, until we'd get going racing winter and spring, we'd be over there. And I basically was luckily I had a buddy that still lived over there that had a spare room and I was just able to come and go as I please. And, and I was hardly ever there because I was always down at Cowie or out at the test track. We were testing all the time. That's crazy. And it was good, but you know, my work, my work, like what I do here is pretty, um, I, I, I pretty much call the shots where, where I'm going to go, what I'm going to do, how much I'm going to develop in a year. Like I, I put together a list um, I put together a list last year of what I'm developing this year that's going to be introduced in 2022 or later this year. So, I mean, it's just a constant. And I've got, I've been doing this for 30 years plus years. So I've kind of got that all dialed in. So you get to have a normal life and have a home life and you get to see your grandkids. Yep. That I do. I get to see them a lot, which is awesome. And You've lived where you live now for a number of years, then I take it. We moved in 2005 and built this house that we're at here in Mesa. Yeah, so we've been here 15 years. That's He's 16 awesome. in July. That's awesome. That's yep. Awesome. Yep. Yeah, I just, uh, I'm, I'm struggling to come to terms with uh, racing, not racing, uh, you know, at this, at this moment. I'm work trying to work a deal with two guys to go back. Um, yeah. And uh it's just I just can't I just can't get it out of my skin. Yeah. And I I don't know I don't know why, you know, I've done it for so many years, I don't know why it's not so easy to just okay, I'm done, you know. Let's, right. We'll do something else. Yeah. No, it's definitely it's addicting. There's no doubt about it, especially if you if you're enjoying it. Um, I travel enough for work that I don't, the racing doesn't interest me anymore. Um, I was supposed to go to work in 2020 for the Lucas oil as the race director. Um, and last minute they pulled, you know, once COVID hit, they kind of pulled the plug and they said, you know what, we're going to stick with the crew we have. And I was going to be trained to come in and help with Lucas Oil, uh, the off-road series, and it didn't end up working because of COVID. And, and luckily, I didn't get involved last year because the, they quit the series anyway. So I would have been stuck with another series that, you know, went defunct. You know, you were involved in Mickey's when it went under, weren't you? Yep. Yep. As soon as I got done racing, uh, Mickey Thompson asked me before he was murdered, um, he asked me to come help with rough driving committee 
And so I kind of worked and then he was, he was killed. And Danny Thompson, who his son, who's become one of my good friends, he kept me involved with rough driving. And then he worked me into uh, taking over Stansberry's job. And then after that, it was uh, the full race director uh, job. And um, things were going good, but again, the economy took a shit and all the truck manufacturers pulled out. And we've seen it go downhill real quick, but as soon as that happened, that's when Feld, um, who they are now, but back then, uh, Clear Channel mm-hmm. uh, contacted me and they bought the assets of Mickey Thompson's Off-Road Series. And I was involved with them for 10 years just doing the off-road races and then the ATV races uh, in the stadium with monster trucks and everything. And, and that was actually a lot of fun. And got to that's how I kind of stayed in touch with the racers and knowing what's going on. Oh, that's pretty awesome. Yeah. So, so you've had pretty colorful career then. Done a little bit of this and a little bit of that. That's for sure. And luckily my, my real career, my main career being uh, tires and wheels, it's been, been fortunate enough being self-employed that I could, I can do these other side things and make that work. So yeah, it's been good. Did you know you were going to get into tires when you did, or did it just something you stepped into? Um, so my, I had two, two sponsors when I was racing for tires, one of them being Hoosier and work with them on developing like the tri-track and a couple of other three-wheelers and four-wheeler tires. But my money paying sponsor was Armstrong Tires, which was the turf tamer. And so then once I got done racing, um, they asked me to come and help them develop and work with them and do some sales, work my way into sales uh, within Armstrong and did that. And they got bought, sold, and then they, uh, not the next company sold. So a lot of my time was with Kenda tires. Was that a good company? A uh, great company. They make great product. Uh, they do, they do a really good job with everything they do. I know they were never a, a mainstream name, but we sold a ton of, we sold a ton of their product for different reasons. Yep. Yeah, no, it was, that was a lot of fun. Um, they, I was there with them for seven, eight years. And then that's when I went out on my own was after that and got tired of working for making other people money. I figured it's time for me to step it up and, and work as an independent and find customers like unlimited and people like that. So you're a consultant developed of tires or you actually develop them and sell them to them, sell them the design, and then they market it and do all that. Correct. On the second part, yes. We, we as a company, it's called Excel Tire and Wheel. We develop, we'll come up with an idea, we'll develop product. Um, it could be tires, golf cart tires, ATV tires, motorcycle tires, UTV tires, wheels. Um, same with wheels. We have a, a big lineup of tire of wheels also for golf cart and ATV and UTV. Um, and so then we'll take it to customers being parts unlimited, 
be an STI, whoever, because we're behind the scenes. Um, we don't have warehousing here or anything like that. And we'll present it to our potential customers and they'll decide if they want to go forward with it or not. And then we'll go ahead and invest into the tooling and, and develop it for them. That's pretty awesome. I didn't, I had no idea. Yeah. You've nope. been doing that for a long time. Yeah. I had no idea. That's what you did. Yep. That's pretty cool. I'm glad you decided to come back and talk with me and, and, uh, you know, tell some good Kawasaki stories. Well, I actually took some notes this time. And so I'm a little better prepared than the first time I was kind of rambled on the first time. And, and I think got a little off track on got into more business stuff than I did really about the racing back then. Well, you know, I mean, we, we had a good conversation and that's what it's really all about is, is having a good conversation. And, uh, and we got to catch up, you know, on different portions of business. And, uh, I'm sure that, well, I know for a fact by the amount of people that listen to the episode that there's uh, a lot of interest in it and they keep listening to it. So people must good. keep liking it. Good, good, good. So back in the day when you were a rider versus being the team manager, uh, what were some of the big differences that you, uh, you rem remember or can tell us about? Well, I can tell you it was a hell of a lot more fun being the racer than it was being a team manager. I called myself the head babysitter when I was the team manager, if you will. Um, there was a lot to put that thing together. Uh, the, you know, when, when I raced, obviously I was young, um, dumb, and all I knew about, all I wanted to do was race. I didn't have to look into all the nuts and bolts and everything. I had a good team around me. Um, signed in, what, 83, June of 83. And then we had our first race, uh, myself and Chris White. And that's the only Kawasaki support at that point. It was us two because the, the three-wheelers came out, just came out in June. Um, so Chris and I were what they called factory riders. Uh, we took production bikes and used some factory parts from Japan, but uh, most of the stuff was in-house, uh, just fabricating things. And I didn't get involved too much with it. Uh, I had a good crew behind me being Daryl Bassani um, and Calvin Frank to start with on the hard parts and then CalFab later on. But, so we started off with just the two of us with Chris White and myself and then um, ended up being the next year, ended up being Chris and I again in 84. And it was good. I mean, Chris was a great kid, um, just young and, and really wanting to make things happen. Um, and everybody around us was good too. I, but it was completely different than what I did as the team manager because they, when I raced for Kawasaki, um, they had a mechanic for me. They had a box van for me. Um, we pretty much prepped the bikes other than the last two years, 85 and 86. We had, they had an in-house guy that prepped the bikes, 83 and 84. Uh, I had a, a guy at Bassani, a buddy of mine from Iowa, Mark Peterson, he helped build the things with their own. So it was completely different the first two years than the last two years. And then in 85 and 86, it all went in house. And um, 
I was a pain in the ass as a rider, so I had a different mechanic every year. Uh, we went through mechanics every year, and luckily, um, some of them became very good friends. Some of them I don't haven't talked to since uh, because we didn't see eye to eye. But um, the last one was Reed Nordine, and he was at Kawasaki, so he started in eighty six, eighty five at, at San Jose, and. He is a good tinker. He, oh, you still there? Yeah, I'm back. Okay. Um, helping him with the uh, setting up the team and picking some riders because in between the time I quit racing in 2006, I was involved with Mickey Thompson's, um, different facets at Mickey Thompson's, uh, ended up running the races at the end. Um, then once they went belly up, uh, with Pace, Clear Channel, whoever the hell they were that year. I worked with them for 10 years, also running events, um, off-road events within the monster truck events. So I'd, I kept up with all the racers throughout those times. And then probably one of the last projects I did is in 2005 is BKT out of India, a tire company. Um, contacted me and hired me to start a sponsorship program to help promote their ATV tires. And so that's when I really got involved with the racers. Um, I sponsored Corey Ellis or BKT did with my help. Corey Ellis, Jason Luberg, um, God, I could go on and on. And, and it was a great program. We had a lot of fun. And then when Reed came about in late 2006, he said, hey, why don't we, uh, I'm interested in doing this. And Bruce Sternstrom was his boss, who was my boss at that point. And he says, let's, uh, let's put a team together. And so we went to Loretta's. I knew most of the racers that did the stadium stuff, but not the um, nationals as much. And so there was some guys that I didn't know, like Josh Kramer never did a stadium race. Um, and there was other guys too. And so we went back to Loretta's and we just poked around and, and Luberg was always on my mind. I, I always thought Jason has got so much raw talent. It was ridiculous. And so he was my first pick uh, to start up with the team. And then I wanted a young kid that was up and coming that had a lot of energy. And that's where I introduced myself to Kramer. Everybody kept pointing his way. He was, he was uh, number 270 and, and it was an interesting conversation. I mean, he's East Coast, and the East Coasters are a little bit different than some of us. And he <laughs> says whatever the hell's on his mind, which I guess I do too. And we hit it off and put together a deal. And we started with both those guys, signed them in November of 2006. And it was just balls to the walls from there because we didn't get bikes until around that time. And our first race was going to be in March of 2007. And we started, we had no history with this thing. It wasn't like it was a KX 450 motor. Um, so we, we went ahead and put this thing together with Reed did help me a lot with all the sponsors. Um, it was good. Kawasaki helped us a ton. They used a lot of the factory, some factory parts they use some factory technology because you know here we are we're jumping into ecus and shit i didn't know nothing about those and but uh, they 
hired uh, Chappie, who was my tr- who was our truck. They called truck driver, but he was more more than just that. And between Chappie and I, then we hired Ben Shiremeyer and nicknamed him Sheet Metal, who went on to be his last gig was Chad Reed's mechanic last year at Supercross. Nice. Uh, the good thing is between Sheet Metal and and Chappie, myself, Reed helped as much as he could, but he had a lot of hats to wear at Kawasaki. Um, we also had Creamer. He was more than just a racer. He was he would build bikes, he would mount tires, he would do anything that was needed. I mean, he was a he's a very unique individual, not afraid of the work both ways, racing and and uh getting things ready. So that was that was the start of it all in uh, November and we spent a lot of time in California and doing testing with Creamer and Luber. And then our first race was uh well, first we went to a ITP series in Arizona and just uh, test all the bugs out. And that was actually Mitch Payton's idea from Pro Circuit. He was doing the helping with doing the motors and obviously the exhaust. And he said, you don't want to just go to a national on a brand new bike like that. You need to go out and test it out. And, and we learned a little bit, but I can tell you when we really learned a lot was in March at Glen Helen. Um, and we were going to do the WPSA series that year anyway, but we figured we'd go to Glen Helen and test that out too. And man, that, that start proved to us we were way under horsepower. I mean, Bird on his Honda was turning around waving at everybody off the start, going up the, the long straightaway. And um, overall, Creamer did pretty good that day, um, considering ended up ninth and then Luberg ended up, Jason ended up 14th, but we knew that we had our homework ahead of us on finding more horsepower. Did, did you have that problem in the three wheeler days at all? No, no horsepower. No, no. Um, actually in the three wheeler days, the first one, the 83 model that came out, I think it was kind of a step ahead of the Honda at that point. Cause they were still working on the um, generation one slash two. And then when they cha- made the major change to the 86, uh, the motor was plenty. The handling wasn't as good at that point on the three wheeler. For the Kawasaki? For the Kawasaki. Yeah. Yep. In our world, when we were dealing with the Kawasaki's, they were never short of horsepower. No, 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 that, that's one thing. The handling wasn't always the best. Um, we got them better on the three wheelers, but the horsepower was good. And on the, on the four wheeler, it, it definitely lacked some horsepower to start with. We had horsepower and overheating issues, um, until the last year, but it, it was, a it was, um, a puzzle to put together that whole program. Let me tell you. And then on top of that, we had um, we had uh, in the WPSA series, we had Baldwin doing with Josh Upperman and uh, Mark Kendall. And luckily, Baldwin was able to help us quite a bit sort some of the issues out that we were having. Well, when I I got to end up with a couple of Kawasaki's, which, you know, um, right. and we uh, 
we did a we started into doing the, de the development and the testing and then um it just never panned out you know my son decided to go in the military and and then i didn't have the desire if he wasn't going to race them i wasn't going to i wasn't going to do any more developing because that wasn't where the company was going the company was right. was developing the honda and the yamaha right right well, I think Curtis ran into that with the Hags modes too, because Hags modes switched over um, to the Kawasaki's from the Honda. And so Gert Curtis was a big help also, even though Davey at that point was amateur, um, pro-am and amateur, he was, Curtis being who he is, he tinkered with it and helped us with a lot too. Yeah. Do you think that, do you think that Kawasaki made a mistake not following the, motorcycle format and dropping it into the quad um electronic you know, maybe yeah i think that would i think that'd be just too much um do you think that the motorcycle power plant with the electronics would have been a better platform on the four-wheeler yes um I, you know i really don't know enough of the ins and outs on if it would have been or not i've, I've never been the mechanical end of it and I think what they had was definitely a class A quad. I mean, it was a great quad, handled great and everything else. We just needed to, we needed to work on more horsepower and getting the, the heat down. And that was, other than that, other than those two things, I, shit, I mean, we were proving it in 2009. They were winning motos, winning overalls, and should have won a championship. But we didn't. Wimmer was better that year. Yeah, and just not by much, right? Um, we had we had too many DNFs um, between. Well, when we started the year, we had uh, Weenan who could tear up anything, <laughs> and he, um, he he started off with gangbusters, and but he just he'd kill the bike, and we had hired Ryan Cox at that point uh, from Yoshimura in he was on a fast track to make that thing as good as it is. And, you know, after the first two races, uh, shit, they were, they were in the only problem they had was themselves once in a while. I mean, shit in, in 2009, Weenan won four. Um, Weenan won four. And um, Weenan won, Excuse me, won six motos, two overalls, and Creamer won four motos and two overalls. That's still not bad. They, like you said, if we look back, if it's always racing, it's if. I mean, it was it was more our fault at the very beginning of the season not having not having the heat issue taken care of. We had the horsepower issue taken care of, uh, even with Weenan as big as he is. Um, we had the horsepower. We just still the first two races, Ryan Cox won series. He won pro class both years. Um, Bobby Ross won the, uh, his first race in 2008. And then Cody Gibson and Bobby Ross got first and second in the pro-am class at the nationals in 2009. So we were headed the right, right way. Uh, just, First year was a learning curve, and then after that, it was just trying to iron out and get everything dialed in. Right. I get it. 
Well, Jimmy, I wanted to say thank you for sitting down with ATV Talk and uh, for the second time. And I know that you're just recovering from the COVID. Um, and uh, not everybody knew, knew. I'm sure that they will now that uh, that that you had your your time with it. And um, oh yeah, I'm glad, yeah. I'm glad that you got over it, and I'm glad that we got to spend more time. Me too. I, I appreciate this. I'm glad this is working out for you. And and anytime, uh, if you have anything else you want to talk about, or if you just want to bullshit and well, surprise, I'm good at that shit too. So I'll 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 fill you in on a new. We changed for 2021. Um, I started doing uh, Tuesdays and Friday episodes, mm -hmm. and we started a thing called Inspired. And now we're going to roll into our Tuesday, Friday thing and call it a thing called the chat. Um, and that's where I'm going to sit down with multiple people. So I will be reaching out to you to sit down with some other guys of the era, maybe, maybe you and some young guys and have a conversation with all of us and uh, tell some stories and, and do some that way. The first chat will be, uh, I'll, I'll be taping the first chat next Monday. Um, and that'll be with Mike Coe and um, Tracy Dixon. Awesome. And Jim Babbitt. Awesome. Good deal. Yeah. I, I, I just, I just had a sit down with Jim and um, him and I were talking during the episode and that's where it kind of started. So I'm going to, I'm going to do the, just sit down with that. And uh, form is, he still in, is he still in North Dakota? Yeah, yeah, crazy bastard. He's a tougher dude than I because I, me too. I wouldn't do it. <laughs> 20, 20 degrees is bad enough, but when he tells me, Oh, yeah, it gets below zero, and I'm yeah, no, no. <laughs> you, you go right on ahead, you be a tough guy because I'm not going to do it. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah. Anytime you want to do something like that, and we could do a team green deal, even a uh, few of us, me, men and all Donnie loose would be fun. Um, you know, I would love to have Donnie on if I could ever get a hold of him. Um, but I've been trying to reach out to Reed as well. Reed's a tough one. Uh, he's pretty quiet, dude. Uh, I'll, I'll say something to him. Um, but he kind of keeps to himself. He's, he's a tough one. Well, anytime you have any input for me, I would love it. Okay. Uh, yep. Steve's a busy, busy guy. Yes. Well, and, he's on vacation right now. He's not that busy. He's down in the Key West, so he he, he can find time to he can find time to do this. Well, I kind of hope so. I kind of hope so because uh, I never have gotten to talk with him much, but we had a phone conversation. I was just a young racer myself, just, just learning it. And that's when I got to see Steve race. Yeah. I got to see you race a few more times, but for some reason he stuck out because, you know, we were Honda kids back then and right. he was putting it on Marty at Porterville <laughs> and I'm standing. I think I told you the story I'm standing at the fence and there's a tractor tire right there. And somehow Marty passed Steve between the tractor tardy and tire and Steve. Wow. And there's no room. Right. 
there wasn't enough room to fit through there. And somehow he passed him there. And, um, but Steve was fast. Oh yeah, for sure. For sure. I mean, there's, there's so many of the, of the guys of your era that I still, you know, I mean, I still look up to all of you guys. Yeah. We, we yeah. all stand around and have gray hair together, but you know, <laughs> like a little kid, you know, going, Oh wow, these guys are awesome. <laughs> Yeah. You know, I mean, it's, it's hard to be a, it's hard when you're such a fan. Right. And no, I, I've always been a fan and that's, that's what makes it really hard and watching the ups and downs of the sport. And, um, you know, I look at how much money I made when I was racing. And then I look at, uh, how much money like my guys were making when I was running the team and, I mean, that was what, uh, 25 years later, mm-hmm. I was making just as much money in the eighties as what these guys were making, you know, afterwards. And it's like, it, it just sucks that you don't see a sport that is liked as much as it is that has not progressed the way it should have progressed. But, you know, some of that's just out of our hands. Yeah. It's mainstream media just yeah. never liked it. Yeah. Oh, believe me. After after I got done with the ATV team, um, I went to Monster because Bruce Sternstrom, who was my boss at the time, had left Kawasaki. He went to Monster. He was the head guy at Monster. And I laid out, I don't know how many proposals to do a privateer team um, with Creamer. And just it was going to be me, Creamer, and a mechanic and hit the nationals and win that championship finally for Kawasaki and Kawasaki was behind it. They were, they were willing to do the bikes and parts. That wasn't an issue at all. Um, but they monster just wouldn't put the money. They, I don't know if they've ever put any money other than our ATV race team. I don't think they've ever put any money into this, into ATV racing at all, which sucks. No, none of the energy drink company has none of none of the corporate sponsors went to an independent. Trust me, I've been beating the bushes and shaking trees for 20 some years trying to get support. And uh, it's it's all been internal, you know, parts. Nobody, nobody does big money anymore. Nobody does money anymore. Right. Not for our racing, unfortunately. It sucks. They should be. Well, it, 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 I agree, but <laughs> we can't force them. Nope. Hey, Jimmy. Okay, I'm buddy. Glad you recovered from COVID. Yeah, uh, all good. I'm, I hope your wife comes through as good as you. Yeah, she, she'll, she's right there. She'll be fine. She's, uh, she's tough. That's awesome. Well, I appreciate your time. And, and again, thank you very much. And I will be reaching out to you shortly for a chat and uh, uh, just expect the call sooner than later. Sounds good. Thanks, bud. We'll talk awesome. to you. You have a great day. Thank you, Jimmy. Bye. The team here at ATV Talk would love your feedback. Please email us at hello at ATVTalkPodcast.com. San Diego's Body Evolution Wellness Center 
With over 17 years experience, Dr. Heidi looking after all your chiropractic needs and Coach PJ looking after your fitness needs. Visit our website, www.bodyevolutions.org or call for an appointment, 858-571-0160. Technologies International. More than 33 years in the industries building racing programs and ATVs around the world. We build winners. Thank you for listening. We hope you enjoyed the episode. If you did, don't forget to rate us on all the available platforms and share us with your loved ones. Follow us on Instagram and Facebook for more ATV Talk News. See you next time.